0: Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of Europe's climate tech revolution, brought to you by Clementum Capital. I'm Johan Bernot, a general partner at Clementum, and I'll be your host. In each episode, I'll have one of Europe's top founders and investors, and we will try to understand how they think about climate, what has led to their success, and what are the best insights they can share with you to accelerate your climate journey. There will be a lot of terrific guests on this show and we won't shy away from spikes secrets and contrarian views to make sure you don't miss out on any episode and access all the insights you can subscribe at climateinsiders.co In this episode, I'm receiving Nicholas Durian, the CEO and founder of Continuum, a composite material recycling startup. He's a fervent entrepreneur who believes no composite should be buried or burned and simply left for future generations to deal with. It's our responsibility to do something better and Nicholas wants to dedicate all his time and energy to cracking this problem. We touch on the big problem of end-of-life wind turbines, the best solutions for recycling composite materials and fiberglass at scale, the best ways to fund a super capex intensive business, the pathways to global scale, and the opportunity for large corporates to play an important role. As a quick disclaimer, Clementum Capital is an investor in Continuum. Let's go. Hey Nicholas, I'm glad to have you on Climate Insiders. Pleasure, Johan. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, tell us quickly about yourself. You're a French guy with an American accent who lived in, or you still live in Germany, and you built a company in Denmark. So, of all the options that you had on the table, why did you decide to start a business in Denmark?
1: Yeah. So, indeed, um, French background, grew up in the states, and have been back in Germany since. But in 2018, I started to get involved in the climate space. Started to get involved with fiberglass recycling, and in 2021, we got together with uh, my two co-founders Einheit Kessing, who's our CTO, and Jesper Kielbeck, who is our COO. And uh, when we were looking at where to found the company, we had already had a discussion and, and first agreement with the port of Esbjerg to locate the factory there. Uh, the port of Esbjerg is a very uh, strategically important part for offshore wind, so the largest offshore wind port in the world. They're a fantastic partner and a fantastic first location for this. And so it just made a lot of sense to create the company in Denmark. And Denmark is also a very business-friendly country.
0: And what inspired you to start a composite material recycling company? I think a little bit of of
1: chance, uh, like a lot of these things sometimes happen. As I said, in 2018, we started to work uh, in a in a previous project with an American company that had developed some fiberglass recycling technology. And for me, that was the intro. Uh, one, moving away from digital business models, which was uh, where I got my start in the startup and entrepreneurship space, and two, into industrial company building and all of these associated... Industries. So, when you talk about fiberglass recycling, you talk about composites. But you talk about the automotive space, the wind space, um, the aerospace industry. You talk about construction, built environment, and it was absolutely fascinating to start to understand the space and to start to understand the need for fiberglass. Recycling six years ago, I would say that it was still a very nascent industry where a lot of the major players were learning about what the problem meant. And talking about the major players, we focus especially on wind because wind is where the problem is particularly acute right now. For 20 plus years, we started to build up these turbines all across Europe and all across the world. And nobody ever really thought about what to do with the blades because the problem was out in the future. Uh, But a few years ago, it became apparent that the first wave of these turbines would be coming down. And while the entire turbine is recyclable, Uh, 90%, we say, the remaining 10% are the blades and they're absolutely not recyclable or weren't recyclable. So talking with the industry, you saw this this massive problem. Uh, And at the same time, you saw a lack of solutions in the market. That was the start. And along the way, this problem has only gotten bigger. Uh, The need has only gotten bigger. The urgency has only gotten bigger and been convinced since day one uh, that this is something that we we absolutely need to solve. And, and thankfully, through uh, the work of Reinhard of Kessing, um, over 20 plus years, we are in a position right now to bring industrial scale recycling capacity for composites.
0: Yeah, awesome. Thanks for setting the stage. Well, to achieve a carbon neutral world by 2040, I just wanted to provide a stat. We will need to install around 1000 gigawatts of wind energy capacity. So that translates mm-hmm. to approximately 1 million wind turbines. Now, mm-hmm. what most people don't know much about is that the other side of the story. So we need a ton of wind turbines and we won't be speaking too much about the building process, which is a polluting in itself. Uh, we will be speaking about the end of life, right? The dismantling process and the lifespan of a wind turbines is typically 20 to 25 years. So what happens? Can you tell us about the sad story of the end of life?
1: The sad story about the end of life? Yes. So you have now tons of gigawatts that are coming to their end of life, as you're talking about. And right now in Europe, you have two main solutions, maybe three solutions. You have landfilling, which is the worst. Yeah, these are massive blades. And when you talk even the smallest blades, you have these these 40 meter pieces of, of composite wind blade material that go out to landfills. They weigh seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen 10, 15 tons. Those are the small ones. You can also put them in waste to energy plants, you can burn them. Again, a very CO2 unfriendly process. Uh, and then the last option at some industrial scale right now is what's called cement co-processing, which means that you actually burn 50% of the blade to use as a kind of substitute fuel in the process. And you're left with the glass because the glass never actually burns and you use it as a substitute clinker in the process of cement manufacturing. Um, again, not a very CO2 friendly and certainly not a long-term solution, even if it might arguably be better than pure landfilling or pure waste to energy plants. So, those are the real kind of dirty solutions that you have right now in the market, the sad story, as you call it.
0: That's right. And now, is there a world where re- sustainable recycling of wind blades is 100% possible? And let's sort of use that proxy to talk about why mechanical processes is is the preferred solution, I guess, as opposed to chemical processes.
1: Yeah, there's absolutely a world. uh, And that world is, is at least in part, uh, includes continuum. So we've developed a what we say is the most advanced mechanical solution for windblade and composite uh, recycling. And so we're able to take very large pieces of windblade and, and end-of-life composite or manufacturing composite waste and via a fully autonomous encapsulated process, transform this material uh, first by actually reclaiming the individual raw materials in a windblade in a composite product, so taking them apart, and then creating new composites, so very much like baking a cake. Um, once we have the materials separated, we can separate or, or we can pick from uh, the materials that are available. We put them back together as a form of recycled composite. And then from that, we create a high-value panel product for the construction industry. Again, we, we recycle 100% of the blade. What we don't use uh, for full transparency are the metals that you have in these products. So you have ferrous and non-ferrous metals, you have carbon fiber, but we separate them out and we give them to somebody that can do something valuable with that. When we look at, let's say, the, the different types of technologies, you have, uh, kind of roughly speaking, you have a mechanical technology, you have uh, chemical technologies, and you have heat-based technologies. And let's say maybe taking a step back, you've had multiple challenges to actually get this up to an industrial scale. And if you look at from a technology perspective, um, which has been the first and foremost challenge to solve, Uh the chemical uh, and the thermal technologies that you have, they tend to actually burn off 50% of the oil-based products. And that means that the materials that are recovered, that are reclaimed are much lower than 100% of the blade. And because you have a lot of chemicals that are added to the process, because you have a lot of heat that's added to the process, you tend to have a much lower quality of material left over. And because of the chemicals, because of the heat, you also have a pretty CO2 intensive process. So that means that chemical and thermal solutions are quite a challenging technical challenge. And then you look at it from a commercial perspective. So say that even if this were feasible at scale, can you make a business model out of it? And because you're reclaiming low quality raw materials from it. Because you have lots of heat, you have a high cost of the transformation process. You have to compete with virgin materials that are themselves actually quite cheap um, with a lower quality and a higher cost product, which makes it extremely difficult. Um, when you look at mechanical technologies, it's a, a challenge because what most technologies tend to do is a very kind of brute, rough process that takes big composites and, and, and chops them down into mini composites, if you will. Um, and means that the the quality of the materials are also not as as high performing as they could be. Uh, it means that you have to add a lot of resins to bind things together again and it limits also the output or the the, the quality of the output that you can have. so you have different challenges and that said, you know it's a, a tough industry and there are a lot of pioneers that are doing excellent work in this field it's it's not to denigrate anybody uh, and their work they're doing because it's all necessary and it all brings the industry forward. But the reality is that in order for this to work at scale, you have to have a, a technically feasible and a commercially feasible product because these projects are expensive to get off the ground and you have to be able to fund them.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, a great uh, great proxy to towards the, the funding question. So I understand it's important for your product to be competitive from day one, right? In order to address the large markets, which is enormous as, as it stands. But what are the core learnings that you could share with other capEx-intensive companies on how to raise a big CapEx round, but your first plant, because you have a technical process that works. Now, how can you do this at scale and raise the millions that are necessary? Good question. um You know, to, to put my thoughts together, I think
1: one, you have to understand the corporate structures that you need to be able to finance this. And so for us, we look at a, a topco company. We have local factory co SPVs and entity to hold IP. Each one of these has a certain function and provides certain services. So you have to understand your your options your business models and then um, create structures that are suitable to you I think that that leads to then being able to understand how to finance this so you have different instruments you have you have equity you have debt you have bank guarantees and insurances and so you have to have a, a really good understanding of the different um, instruments uh, to be able to to finance this I think that you also have to understand the investors. We come a lot from the VC world, but the reality is that the VCs are not the ones typically funding later stages for these companies. That's right. The the 50 million, 100 million euro checks. These are typically private equity, infrastructure type of investors. And the mentality is very different and the approach and requirements are very different. You hear a lot about capital preservation, right? So that means that even... More than how can I make a certain return, show me why I won't lose money. Yeah, And that's important. You have to show that you have risk mitigation mechanisms in place so that they won't lose their money.
0: Does that mean that VCs are absolutely necessary to get get you off the ground, right? Give you the permit to play, right? In, in a way, uh, just uh, but they quickly disappear. In the background and let private equity firms or infrastructure funds take over the control which means that you will not go over subsequent multiple rounds of vc money
1: yeah i think that obviously everybody has a different risk appetite and um, that's that's the role of of the vc uh, investor in these earlier stages is to take that pre-development risk i think that vcs shouldn't be the only let's say players supporting this especially because i think these these technologies are so important right so um we have to look at how grants uh, and subsidies come into play uh, to be able to to support some of the funding gaps that exist Uh, But uh, yeah, generally speaking, I think you have the VCs that can take some of the earlier pre-development risk and then you have to get to a certain level where you can uh, then start to engage with the private equity and and infrastructure and other types of investors in this realm that will then bring these large CapEx projects to life.
0: That's right. Uh, So so now going back to Continuum, you're opening up your first 36,000 ton factory in the port of Esberg, as you mentioned, west of Denmark. This is a major step for the moving the industry forward. Can you explain why is it such a big deal for the, the industry as, as a whole?
1: Yeah, so first, again, there are no industrially ready technologies right now that kind of check off all of the boxes. That means uh, again that the, there's a, a huge problem to be solved. Nobody is has been able to solve it up until this point, And that's made it relatively difficult. Yeah, I think that our role here in bringing this first factory to life is to open up this market. Um, when we look at the overall tons and volumes of material in the market, there are, are, are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of tons that will need to be disposed of per year. And when you look at one continuum factories, 36,000 tons, uh, we want to open up multiple factories in Europe, but that's still a fraction of what we need to really be able to handle this waste. And so um, what is our role here? What, how do we drive this in- industry forward? I think that once you know, the, the, getting this factory off the ground allows the different players to now be able to plan around a solution. And up until now, that's been missing. So even if you wanted to do something good with your blades or with your your composite products, you couldn't. Um, As a matter of fact, we know that people do want to do good because there are blade owners that are simply stocking their blades right now, waiting for a solution. And so having this first factory open will give them that planning that they need to be able to make long-term decisions. What that also does is then incentivize the secondary kind of players that are also needed. So it's not just recycling, but there's that whole ecosystem or value chain Around it. If we look at just blades, you need the logistics companies, you need the blade cutters, you need all of these different players that are going to drive the efficiency in the industry uh, and create the standards to make it easier for everybody to be able to recycle their material. And what that also does is that once you create that, that efficiency, you can go after even harder to recycle. Um, types of composite products so blades for us are a beautiful product right because they're massive you know where they are you know who owns them um, you're getting quite sophisticated models to to be able to predict when their end of life should be but uh, if you look at for example the fiberglass that's in a circuit board that's a completely different beast right now it gets sent off um, to be melted away so that you can reclaim the precious metals uh, and, and that means that the fiberglass goes to waste but once you open up that industry again drive the efficiencies you'll be able to go after those harder to reach products so that hopefully you can get to a a point uh, in the future where the overwhelming majority of these materials will be recycled uh, instead of wasted forever in low quality disposal methods.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to get something straight is you're mentioning the pent up demand for a solution to pick up those things that are sitting idle or being buried today. So the millions of blades that are just not being used. So that's awesome. You have supply what about the demand side and a lot of people get this wrong saying this is uh, well, a charity work or something that you know should be handled by government there's no real business model but what you've found is that the construction space is really desiring a solution like yours because you could create wood-cement panels. Can you speak about this and how in which quantity uh, are we are we talking about here?
1: Yeah, so I think that's you know part of the key to unlocking the the recycling here. In our solution and in general is that we can from this end product from the the raw material or the feedstock material create a really high-value product and a product that is also itself recyclable because what you don't want to do is just move the problem from one end another further in time and we've we've created this panel that is you know let's say just as exciting for the construction industry as the recycling piece is for blade owners and the end of life waste owners it's a panel that when you look at the different properties that we achieve allows us to compete amongst a wide variety of also top products in the construction industry and it's a product that really doesn't exist yet the the advantage that we have is that we can replace certain products that do exist. So we're not trying to create an entirely brand new market. And we're going into a very large market. And we have a a panel that behaves, at least in how users want to to use it, meaning the types of of finishes and work that you would do on a construction site with it, very much like what they're used to. Um, So again, there's no kind of educational piece um, to get people to understand how and why they can use our product. The other advantage that we have is that overall, uh, we create... 30,000 cubic meters per factory in terms of overall volume for the industry. That's relatively low, right? So I think that's, that's why we can find a sweet spot uh, in terms of the right niche applications without uh, working harmoniously, let's say with the different players in the industry already.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, is there room for multiple technologies? So you have one set of mechanical processes that works and that is ready for scale. But should VCs fund dozens of startups like yours that might have just quick alterations or should most of the money be piled into one or two big players to accelerate innovation? And I guess as an extent, extension of that question is, in your opinion, is it time yet to pick the most affordable solution or we're still at the experimentation phase where we should just fund as many solutions possible to just elevate the industry?
1: Um, so should we fund multiple technologies or one or two technologies to drive innovation forward? Mm hmm. I think we talked a little bit about the role of the VC investor and being an early stage investor. And I think it's kind of the nature of a VC investor to fund multiple technologies at that early stage, um, because you don't have necessarily the development or maybe the information at that point to know what are the one or two technologies that you should back. Yeah, But maybe the question is, how can we Back more technologies uh, as quickly as possible because I think that there are, you know, there, there are few things more pressing right now than solving this, this climate issue. Uh, and we need to put as much money behind it so that we don't get behind and then we don't put ourselves in a very difficult position in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And, you know, I think there are multiple actors that have to play a role here and, and that that's possible. I think, you know, the, the sad thing is maybe the pain point is just not acute and felt by enough people right now for there to be a true collective effort you see you know what happened with with covid we had a, a global emergency we had vaccines that needed to be developed as quickly as possible and before it took five or ten years to develop a vaccine and all of a sudden we were able to develop multiple vaccines in under a year which people would have told you were, were impossible right so that shows you the power of coordination and and investments in in multiple technologies to be able to make sure that ultimately we have a solution, um, you know. I think almost maybe back to to the space race, right? Um, 50, 60 years ago, where people thought uh, it, it's impossible to go to the moon, and in a short amount of time, we went from launching satellites to putting somebody in space to putting somebody on the moon. Uh, again, things that thought that were thought to be crazy back then. But when there's that global, uh, well, in that case, maybe not global. When there, but there's that collective effort to do something. We know that we can move mountains. Yeah, and I think that same kind of urgency has to be felt. I'm just not sure if it's fully, fully felt and, and supported right now.
0: Okay, so in your particular vertical, it might not be fully felt or, and we need to develop sense of urgency. So one way to reframe the problem is to talk about government's, you know, sovereignty and the fact that China currently manufactures more than 80% of the global solar photovoltaic panels. This is uh, the international agency that has demonstrated that. Does that mean that you know, elevating this issue of, of recycling wind panels as a way to increase recycling, handling local supply chain and then increasing sovereignty is just a way to accelerate regulation and protection to create an industry faster.
1: I was talking a little bit on the, the kind of global climate problem. Where I still don't think there's enough money being poured into it. Mm-hmm. I think that, obviously, when you look from an investor perspective, it's that risk-benefit uh, analysis and that, of course, we're not taking the externalities into consideration, uh, the ESG uh, externalities into consideration when we look at these investments holistically. But yeah, I think that the Ch- China is a very interesting case because in a short amount of time, they've become global leaders in solar uh, technology, they're becoming very dominant in wind technology, carbon capture, uh, electric vehicles. I saw some interesting article recently about um, one of the, the big automotive shows in China and that when it comes to battery technology, they're doing things that nobody else is doing. When you look at the Chinese markets, you, you know, their consumers prefer local brands rather than foreign brands. And I think that shows you the, the state of their technology, the advancements of their technology uh, and their readiness to be a, a global player across these different markets.
0: A big driver. And it seems that we're reverting back from a global thinking, right, to a block think. And there's something for Europe. And we get asked all the time as a fund, as investors, as thought leaders, how do we protect our companies here? So will the EU technologies remain European? So it's particularly a concern for public funders that say, we're providing a ton of grant and non-diluted funding, but we need the guarantee that this creates jobs locally and, and value. Uh, so what's your opinion there? Is there just a, a way again to use this as an opportunity, this sort of political game and, and the geopolitics in your favor to accelerate this? And is this a responsibility of one single company or can they unify themselves and create, you know, a uh, bit of lobbying together so that it accelerates regulation in your favor.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, in general it's not a new issue that Europe has always lagged behind in terms of investments amounts and, and risk appetite into technology in general. So whether you look at the US, Asia, um, the main main competitors, they've been willing and continue to be willing to put more money into uh, technology in general so it's definitely in the interest of EU here to make sure that these homegrown companies um, can maximize their potential in europe where we also have the problems um, rather than trying to or, or taking the risk that these technologies have to go somewhere else in order to also reach their potential and, and reach their their climate impact now ultimately uh, climate change is a global problem uh, so we need these two solutions wherever they exist.
0: And I wanted to speak about the role of incumbents as well, the big corporates, the large guys. So it it strikes me as a surprise almost that Siemens and some of the big guys that operate huge parks of wind haven't come up with this solution. But will they sit around and let startups like yours grow or will they copycat as soon as they you know, see your, dem- your demonstrator, your first factory up and running? Or uh, will they try to acquire you as soon as possible? And, and what's the optimal path, I guess, for the industry?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, for, in our niche here, it was a tough challenge to solve. Yeah, there are 14, 15, maybe different research projects that have been ongoing for several years, many years, looking exactly into this wind blade recycling project uh, or problem. And these consist of, of corporates, universities, um, consortiums that have been put together in order to try to find a solution. And the fact that so many exist and so few solutions or no solutions are still available shows you the technical challenge at hand. I think that, you know, corporates will, by nature, as, as the kind of uh, large cruise ship, um, will always remain slower than startups. So I think it's the balance of getting the support from the corporates to accelerate these types of technologies, but keeping the right distance or balance uh, so that startups have the freedom to operate and to fully execute on their vision before becoming too, uh, let's say, entangled with uh, with any one player.
0: And I wanted to get personal for a minute, and it takes a particular type of founder to start such a company. You could have started an easier business and you're driven for the the values and the impact. And when would you be inclined? I mean, this is sort of you as extension of all the founders that are in the same type of businesses. When is this a good idea to start? selling your company uh, to maximize the impact when you know that the corporate buying it will just deploy it across their network and then scale the innovation much faster, but it might not ma- maximize your, your own personal output.
1: Well, I'm I'm one of three co-founders, and we have um, you know, different shareholders, uh, so it's it's definitely a, a team effort to get this off the ground. Um, we have some some experts across some leading experts, um, you know, across our team, and everybody is fully behind this and and pushing every single day to make sure that we make this a reality. Now, you know, when is the right time to to exit? I think how much impact can we have? Uh, and I kind of separate that actually from, from an exit. We have a vision um, to build multiple factories across Europe. Um, this is a global technology from day one. And so how can we expand as, as quickly but uh, as effectively as possible? And to me, that's possible you know, in many different ways besides just an exit. Actually, um, when we look at our business model, we look at ownership in the first, uh, we always say three factories, but in the first three factories in Europe, <clears throat> and then creating joint ventures with local entities who know their markets better than we do. And then we can supply the technology, we can supply the learnings, we can supply some some operational support. But ultimately, we have the JVs in other countries who are able to uh, to run the factories for us.
0: That's right. It's good that you bring that up. Is uh, This is a recurring theme for hardware deep tech companies that crack it at the first factory and then expand the global scale they need joint ventures. This is a a recurring pathway. And we invite everyone to explore that just partnering with local entities, or even acquiring local, you know, local players so that they give you a, a credit, right, or The credentials to operate locally. And I I wanted to sort of bounce back on this side, the the, the personal side of things is the fact that you're so value driven and driven by impact. This is what attracts this enormous wave of people that just want to leave their bullshit jobs, you know, where it's just nonsensical and it doesn't drive any positive impact in the world. But I wanted to ask you and personal interested is what kind of hires do you need to scale such a, a hardware startup? You know, from the outside, it feels like uh, CapEx heavy companies leak, uh, need engineers, technical folks, people in factories, you know, with gray hair. But paint us a picture, I guess, of what is needed to scale s- such a company. And can you still offer a cool and remote first uh, culture for uh, young folks?
1: Yeah, I, I think you said it, you know, gray hairs or, or in, in some of our cases, uh, fewer hairs. Uh, but uh-huh. <laughs> you need senior people. Um, to get this off the ground, I think it's it's a reality. These are you know very uh, capex heavy projects, and investors and stakeholders want to know that uh, you have the team in place to be able to actually implement this. And there's there's always a, an element of learning by doing. Uh, But that only has value if you have people that have um, in some capacity been there before to understand and even anticipate the challenges that you might have so that you can plan and mitigate them ahead of time as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I think that when it comes to, you know, the cool remote first environment, um, we have a hybrid type of environment by... By necessity. And we have an office in Copenhagen. We have an office in the UK. Some of us are um, working uh, in in remotely in other locations. Um, But the advantage to that has been that we've been able to bring on some of the best people. And we wouldn't have been able to do that if we had just picked one location where it might have been much more difficult to do that. But we're constantly reminded that remote first, uh, or at least remote only simply doesn't work. You need to get in a room. You need to. Uh, exchange ideas and discuss the issues. And there's an incredible amount of work that comes out even in just a few days um, off-site together uh, that you can never do in just a few weeks. So um, personally, I don't think that you can have a remote-only company in this space. And I think you need to make the effort to get together as much as possible, Yeah, as often as possible.
0: Well, we're running out of time. Thanks, Nicholas, for this great conversation, for all your insights. And to all of you, thanks for listening. As always, don't forget to subscribe if you want to hear about the next episodes on climateinsiders.co. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Johan. Thanks for listening to another episode of Climate Insiders, the leading climate tech podcast in Europe. If you've enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Climate Insiders is brought to you by Clementum Capital, a late C to Series A climate tech VC. To learn more about Clementum Capital, apply for funding or become an LP, visit clementum.com.